Good morning and welcome to another episode of The Mana Podcast. My name is Sam Jeske and thanks for tuning in this Friday morning. Hope and pray that your Friday is off to a great start. Sorry we missed you last week. I was up in northern Wisconsin on vacation away from my computer. Wasn't doing any work. So we didn't have an episode last week. But we do have an episode for you today. We're going to be wrapping up our conversation between Jacob and I on the Lord's Supper and Holy Baptism. If you missed our previous episodes on that, highly encourage you to check those out to get the context you need for today. Otherwise, we're going to be wrapping up our discussion on Articles 10 of the Augsburg Confession, that being on Lord's Supper. Hope and pray you enjoy our conversation today. The objection that baptism saves, or the objection that baptism is, you know, it's not for children. It's This is predicated on... Someone might read a particular passage out of context. I'm not, I don't want to give the impression that people who make such arguments are somehow, they're making their case outside of the Bible or they're not mm-hmm. looking to the pages of Scripture. But I will say, at least in the conversations I've had, I know this is anecdotal, but it tends to be, the objections tend to be extra biblical in nature. Yeah. And that they're more philosophically driven. Right, like, i.e., oh, the yeah. the finite cannot contain the infinite, uh-huh. or how can how can material things grant and give spiritual blessings? Those are these are not biblical postulations. These are extra biblical, rational inquiry or philosophical commitments that are now reflected in questions. Like I, I like so for example, um, so Sam, Sam Harris. Um, I actually got a couple of his books also behind you. Hmm. Sam Harris is a outspoken critic of Christianity and all religions for that matter. He is a, he's a, um, a modern philosopher and biologist and a devout atheist. Hmm. And he was having a debate with William Lane Craig and he was poking fun at Christians. And he said, if I told you, if I held up a cracker in front of you and I said that this is the body of Elvis Presley, (laughs) You'd 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 lo- you'd put me away. You'd think I'm crazy. But as soon as I go into a church, and or if I as soon as I go to some church, and I'm presented, you know, this is the body and blood of Jesus. You're just a Catholic, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Now, to be fair, I mean, there like the Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper is not what the Lutheran Church teaches, and maybe no. that is. I don't know if they get it. I, I mean, I think that the Lutheran confessors get into that. Probably not. Not in, maybe in the apology of the, yeah. of the, of the Lord's Supper, yeah, but, but not in the Lord's but Supper. I hear, actually, the, uh, the Dia at Augsbury actually approved of this article. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I think, cause, I think it's because, I mean... It must not have been offensive refor- enough to the Catholic Church, right? The reformers here leave it. I guess it's it's vague enough to where even a Catholic could be like, yeah, okay, you know, like we'll accept that. They're so. I mean, again, it with with the Catholic Church, they teach. Well, we're we're getting ahead ahead of ourselves. The reason why I brought up the Sam Harris quote before we look at Catholicism and what they teach about the the Lord's Supper. The reason I brought up the Sam Harris quote is because they. He is coming at it with particular presuppositions, that being a materialistic, naturalistic mm. explanation to everything, where the material world is all there is. That's 
or the natural world. Naturalism is that is just that that the material natural world is all there is. There's nothing beyond this. There is nothing that exists outside the scope of modern scientific inquiry. Um, and even then, that that statement isn't true. Um, when it comes to just empirical observation, clearly even on an evidential level in our own lives, there are things that we might not be able to run under a microscope or see or touch. Nevertheless, we affirm them to be true. Mm. So, for example, the absolutes of moral values and duties, mm. whether something is objectively evil or good. I can't... I might see an action take place that I call evil, but... These are these values are something that I'm I'm putting on these things. They 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 arrive from me, and uh, Sam Harris is somebody who has to grapple with that when it comes to the he has to grapple with. There is a distinction between facts and values. Someone may, I can empirically show someone say robbing, but I can't, but. It's a value for me than to say this was evil. Hmm. And that's not something that I can see under a microscope or something that is empirically presented to me by virtue of science. Um, someone might try and blur or conflate facts and values together. Um, but, I mean, again, that's more of an apologetic discussion. What I'm getting yeah. at is that um, even on the argument of everything has to, you know, beyond the natural world, or everything has to have some sort of materialistic, naturalistic explanation. Um, you sit down with your naturalist or your materialist and they're not going to give you, they're not going to, they're not going to give you sufficient answer or sufficient grounds for even that statement alone, because they're going to be borrowing, or at least oftentimes, um, a lot of the prominent new atheists will, will be borrowing language that only a, a God centered worldview can afford. Yeah. So it's, um, and those are, and these are things that they're not, these are values that, that in a, in a, in a world which is value free when it comes to like, say the natural world, which is value free. It's an, it's an in, 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 intrinsically value free in that I, not, not to say that it doesn't have value, but it does not present values to me. Mm. I then am the one who's saying this isn't right. This shouldn't be this way. Well, why is that? On naturalism, can I say this? Or is there something beyond what I, beyond the material, mm. beyond the natural here, that something outside of this that's actually telling me that what that which I see, there's, there is a should or shouldn't. Um, science can tell me, science tells me what is, but not what ought to be. Right? Right. And so um, even, long story short, even guys like Sam Harris on their insistence that everything has to be materially defined or naturalistically explained, even then they're finding themselves in a battle that they can't win. <laughs> mm. As this intersects with baptism, then again, go back to the words of God. What does he say this is? What does he say he does through this? Who does he say this is intimately connected to? Well, him. Yeah. Well, let's just take him at his word then. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, or you're, 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 you're fifty years old, fifteen, five or five months or five days. Mm. This is for you, because God says so. 
But what other thoughts you got on there? Yeah, it it does remind me of a, a story I heard of a pastor who uh, he was going through uh, confirmation with a child, and he asked her, uh, "Is the bread and wine uh, the body and blood of Christ?" And she said, "Yes." And he's like, "Well, how is it the body and blood of Christ?" You know, and she sat there, and her face got all red. She and she didn't know the answer, and so she finally just after thinking for a few minutes, said, you know, Pastor, I don't know. And he just responds, good answer. <laughs> Cause I, and it's one of those things where one of the things I appreciate about Lutheranism is that we're willing to keep uh, the mysteries of Christ, mysteries, you know, yeah. is we're willing just to accept Christ at his word, you know, that yep. this is my body, this is my blood given to you for the forgiveness of sins. And that's, and to me, because to me, like what I've noticed about any sect that tries to answer the how is it, they typically almost always fall into some kind of, well, heresy, you know. Again, retreat to not when this is something, but what this is that God promises it is. And and not how is this possible, but who is the one who says it is possible hmm. is probably a better question. So not... Not fixating on when it is, but well, what it is. And not how it is, but who's the one who says it is. And I, I think when we got our focuses there, I, and, and children tend to, that is the faith that you do see reflected in children, whether it be the trust they extend towards parents or the trust towards God. Um, they, they might ask questions about when, but they're going to have confidence in what it is. And... More often than not, they're not going to start objecting to the how. They're going to trust that, you know, who it is, that, who says it is, what it is. I, I think the other, simple answer, so in addition to, you know, when this, this pastor's asking, well, how is it the Lord's Supper? You could say, well, I don't know. And that's, that's a good answer. Or mm. because God says so. Because Jesus says so. Yeah. Here is my body. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. Well, Jesus said, you know, Luther was pretty adamant that those words alone were sufficient for arguing that this is his body, this is his blood. And uh, guys like um, Zwingli, right? Zwingli, yeah. <laughs> I like how you said his name with a little contempt and frustration. Zwingli. <laughs> no, uh, so um, we're we're thankful for positive contributions when it comes to Ulrich Zwingli. In the Protestant Reformation, there was obviously a lot of heartache and angst between Luther and Zwingli over um, the Marburg Colloquy, right? Mm, yeah. Over the discussion of the Lord's Supper and, and whether or not this is, in fact, the body and blood of Jesus. And and um, Luther experienced a little bit of pressure at this time that, you know, what was said to him is, hey, if you know, if you, and I don't know if this came from a lengthen, but it, it came from, it definitely came from other, other, um, say protestant persuasions that were like you know we could really gain a lot of friends if we just kind of ease up on our language when it comes to <laughs> the lord's supper and luther said you know by, by conscience we can't do that mm. if these are the clear words of god if, if this is in fact what christ has said when it comes to his supper who am i to then say you know we got to backpedal on this or who am i to say ultimately it's not my meal it's not my supper which does segue into the, um, I suppose we've probably hit 
the good yeah. stuff, to, the big stuff to talk about with baptism, we might as well jump into the Lord's Supper now, right? Right. I... <laughs> I'm glad we went through it like this because, like I said, all of these conversationally, um, who the church is in relation to baptism and the Lord's Supper, all this stuff, and then who God is and Christ is in relation to the baptism and the Lord's Supper and his church, all these things are very intimately wound together. Oh, yeah. And you're you're kind of, as you talk about one, like baptism, you're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper too. So I'm glad we did it this right. way. But you want to um, you want to read the very, very, very small article that's on the Lord's Supper? Sure thing. Our churches teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and distributed to those who eat the Lord's Supper. They reject those who teach otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, it has, uh, first Corinthians ten sixteen, which I probably could roughly say that by memory because I've looked at, I'm, I'm going to first Corinthians 10 every time I have a Bible information class is not the cup of Thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body for we all partake of one loaf. Um, notice in in um, here's where here's where Lutherans would uh, when it comes to what what the Lutheran confessors held to in relation to the Lord's Supper and what Lutheran churches still cling to today um, is that at reception of the Lord's Supper we receive not one not two not three but four elements. Um, the Catholic Church would say that you only re- receive two. And those who adhere to a symbolic understanding of the Lord's Supper will say you only receive two. The Catholic Church adheres to the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, you know, where you trans substance, where there, there, there's a substance change that's taking place. Yeah. Where the bread has become the body. The wine has become the blood. When I hold in my hand what looks to be bread, it's no longer bread. Mm-hmm. What what I what I hold in my hand that might well again some churches some Catholic churches withhold the cup from the laity. Um, they they don't. Um, some Catholic churches where the the parishioners will not receive the wine; they'll only receive the bread. Yeah. But in Catholic churches where parishioners would receive the wine, um, it's no. They would. The Catholic Church would hold to the teaching that they're no longer actually. They're not. They're not holding wine anymore, or they're not receiving wine. They're actually receiving only, exclusively Jesus' blood. Hence, your Corpus Christi festivals, where this has now become something other than bread and wine. Hmm. Similarly, with um, with uh, kind of representationism, if you'd call it that, where this is but a representation or a symbol. Um, of Jesus' body and blood, they'll tell you that you're only receiving two elements too, except you're receiving just bread and just wine. The Lutheran Church is quite literal when it comes to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not, how many elements are referenced here? Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. That word for participation there is koinonia, communion. Hmm. And 
that's that's why we we call this holy communion you know some people call it the lord's supper some call it the holy eucharist or something and um uh, usually a, a lot of catholic churches will refer to it as the eucharist yeah. Some Lutheran churches will call it the Eucharist, and I think maybe in some in the Anglican or Episcopalian tradition might refer to it as the Eucharist as well, which, um, you know, Eucharisto being, you know, a, a giving thanks mm. from the Greek. Um, but we, um, we, we, we might, like I said, you know, we might call it the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, and this idea of communion is, is there's, there's a lot of communion that's taking place during this. There's first of all, a communion, a vertical communion between myself and God at the reception of this. There's a horizontal communion, communion that's going on as well. And that's impressed with verse 17, because there is one loaf. We who are many are of one body for we all partake of one loaf. Mm -hmm. So there's a horizontal communion that's desired to be expressed there as well. A horizontal fellowship. Right, so there's the vertical fellowship, koinonia, a participation. Right, the Apostle Paul talks about this too, where we we participate in the divine as Christians, as being you know being renewed and remade in the image of God. There's a koinonia there between us and God. Similarly, um, and then at, at obviously in a very unique, special way at reception of the Lord's Supper, vertically, horizontally there is one too. Mm. That we who are a, are one body partake of one loaf. There's also a communion between the elements that is taking place during the Lord's Supper. There is a communion between the, um, the heavenly elements, that being Jesus' body and his blood, and the material elements, that being bread and wine. The Lutheran confessors would also say that we bodily receive Jesus' body and blood. We wouldn't say physically receive it. Because you're right. If I run this bread under a microscope or do a blood test on this wine, I'm, I'm going to find, oh, this is a Mogan David, you know? <laughs> you know? Oh, I, I, this, this is, this, you know, this is a, you know, in, in, in the, the bread that we use, I mean, it's, <laughs> I was listening to an episode of, of uh, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament and they were talking about, um, they're talking about the the bread of the presence that would be or the show bread as it's sometimes mm -hmm. referred to those 12 loaves that would that would sit on this this golden table in the holy place and the idea is that it would kind of like soak in the awesomeness of God it would it would be loaves of bread that would sit before the presence of God and then at the end of that week at, on the sabbath they would rotate those 12 loaves out and they would bring in 12 more and those loaves of bread there is only one person who would eat those, and those would be the priest, whoever's serving at the temple. That was food for the priest. Now, that wasn't exclusively his diet, but the idea there is that God is providing for those who, who serve in his church, that he's, or, and ultimately his people, that God is ensuring that they're, that they're sustained. And, um, you know, they were, they were <laughs> so, so the guys at 40 Minutes in the Old Testament were laughing about this, and they're talking about how, I mean, some some days I feel like I need more faith to believe that this is in fact bread <laughs> than it, than I need faith to believe that this is Jesus' body, <laughs> because it's so it's it, it's so unlike the the bread that we usually have. Mm, yeah. I mean, the bread that you know, at least in our tradition, you'll you'll go up to receive communion. It'll be this 
tiny sliver of a wafer that dissolves on your tongue. Yeah. Anyhow, I digress. Um, we, we, we hold to the reception of four elements. Um, too earthly, too heavenly. And that there's a real communion that's taking place where I where I bodily receive Jesus' true body and blood, but I also receive it in with and under bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Those are the uh, the uh, the prepositions that the Lutheran confessors Luther especially used when it came to what is the Lord's Supper. We don't teach that this is like a meat pie, where <laughs> you know, which I believe is impanation. Um, where, uh, at least that's what it's referred to, where it's kind of like outside is the crust, inside is this special thing where somehow buried within the visible exterior, the material exterior is this spiritual thing. Um, nor do we teach consubstantiation, which would say you throw all the elements in a blender, hit, hit blend, and now you got this pureed mixture. Mm. We teach real presence. That's That's what our church body will teach and so not real presence in terms of like, well, Jesus is really present when we receive this, like as he's really present when I go to Meyer to buy groceries or he's really present when, um, I open his word. This is where we mean real presence in that there is a, that he is really present in a very unique way. Yeah. In addition to his omnipresence, right? in addition to his indwelling within the hearts of Christians. So we don't want to confuse the presence of who our, you know, of our God um, with his omnipresence, or that he, he abides in and penetrates all things, nor do I want to confuse this with the indwelling of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the hearts of believers. This is presence in a very real, unique way. Mm. So I, I've done enough talking on that, I suppose, but what do you got? Um... <laughs> I do have the devil advocates question. Let's of, go for it. Uh, yeah, so if Jesus is like sitting at the right hand of God, <laughs> how could he be like in the bread and wine? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, so if he and again that this if uh, if Jesus has bodily ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, how can he bodily give himself in bread and wine? And maybe I, I probably phrased the objection um, not the way I wanted to. Um, it's, oh, how do, I, how do I describe this without getting entirely technical? So Jesus is, um, that Jesus is physically at the right hand of God the Father. That doesn't mean that he can't bodily be present in the Lord's Supper. The other thing that we have to get into, and again, this is, high, this is a highly technical answer, and I hope the people who are sticking with us, koinonia communion right Mm -hmm. in in christology 101 we we talk about another communion that takes place that is the communion of natures between the divine and the human nature within the person of jesus there are um uh, without getting to some of the big technical jargon um there are divine attributes that are communicated from the divine nature to the human nature but not there is but that's not a that's not a reciprocal in that um Here's an example. Um, omniscience is communicated to the human nature from the divine nature in the person of Christ. Hmm. However, the ability to die is not communicated to the divine nature, right? Um, or um, suffering 
is not communicated from the human nature to the divine nature. It's not a it's not a reciprocal communication. So, um, in the case of omnipresence, the divine nature has this essentially. The human nature has this as a gift, right? So, when it comes to God's omnipresence, this is something that most certainly can be communicated from the divine to the human nature based on biblical Christology. We refer to this as the communication of attributes. Hmm. Uh, within, like, that's that, that's how it's talked about. Again, koinonia, that same kind of communi- communion, that same word would be, yeah. we, we might use that. So, I think that that's probably as non-technical as I can get. Yeah, and I think Luther made the comment also of, well, God the Father's spirit, so we know he doesn't have a literal right hand. So, and I think the way that Lu, 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 Luther went on to explain it was that, um, that the expression that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father talks more about his status yeah. than it does he's literally sitting next to God's right hand. And that's a and that's yeah. a good point too, because if you look at what the so for example, how the especially in Hebrew, how the the concept of the right hand is used or the right hand of God. Um, or if I were to have a party at my house in say in ancient Israel and um, a banquet and I'm the host, whoever is sitting at my right hand, that's the seat of highest honor and then the left, right? And then basically would alternate further and further and further away from me. So when Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees vie and fight for the seats of highest honor, they're they're basically sitting at at the, the right and then the left hand of the host, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father is is a, there is a there's a, it, it's it's kind of a cultural thing in that it, it does intersect with the pages of Scripture, but it's playing off of it's taking something that was very culturally familiar and it's it's in, it's ascribing that then to Jesus to right. an even higher degree that there's there's power there's authority there's respect and there's honor there's glory. Um, you also see the right hand um, when it came to, when it comes to um, uh, the right hand of God working within salvation history. Mm. Um, this is, so there's, there's high Christology when it comes to the right hand of God in operation in his grace and power on behalf of his, his mm. plan of salvation. And so, so to your point, um, the right hand is not, when we talk about God's right hand, it's, um, it's, it's not so much to be purely simple or to, like merely simplified down to this physical space where like he's Jesus is landlocked or something. Yeah. Nope. Don't get out of that chair. Um, people are counting on you to be sitting in this singular place <laughs> forever. Like, you know, and and then and then somehow Jesus is is he's circumscribed to this little you know this this <laughs> this square footage yeah and, <laughs> and my other thought is okay so if we're going to take that past literally where it says that christ is sitting at the right hand of the father then in that case when scripture also says that christ is the firstborn of all creation should we all be arians now yeah too you know yeah. like <laughs> that's that, yeah it's it's yeah that's that's a good point too in that um or the um 
Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that I think that that could work. I think you could go to that. Um, you are right, though. It's it's if um, we could also look at other sections of scripture where, mm. um, say, um, we the other day we were looking at um, Genesis nine or Genesis eight, end of eight into yeah. nine, where it talks about that God could smell the fragrant offerings that Noah made at his sacrifice upon exiting from the ark. Mm. It's like what? Does God have a nose? <laughs> you know, can God smell things? And so these are, there is a, um, we do want to be, there's a good, we want to be mindful as we go into the sections of scripture and namely when it comes to the um, the bodily Im- imagery that God uses to describe himself, where, you know, it talks about um, uh, the face of God or the nose of God or the ears of God or the eyes of God or the hands of God or the feet of God and stuff like this too. Um, but to your point, this is where the incarnation of Jesus is so comforting in that um, my God is tangibly, my God tangibly tends himself in plain sight of his people. You know, that so the word in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god so you know sorry arians you're wrong <laughs> um that that this word that became flesh that word has been has stood at the right hand of the father from all eternity and that word became flesh and and made his and pitched his tent among us the verb there is from the greek um literally to tent I mean, the, 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 the word for tent is, it flows from the exact same verb, obviously. And, mm. and so it's this idea of to tabernacle among his people, um, which is, you see this picked up in Hebrews, where it talks about a greater tabernacle, that being Jesus. You see this alluded to when with the tabernacle that would go with them wherever they went. And that tabernacle would be pitched when they would stop and make camp. And then there, um, at the tent of meeting, there we see God visibly manifest and reveal himself to his people, that I'm still with you. You didn't leave me at the last pit stop. I'm still here in a very real way. Um, that's impressed on people when you know when it came to the um, Old Testament sacrifices and um, that very tangible there. Similarly, with... Uh, um, uh, or even the showbread, that the uh, the bread of the presence, that the priest would then receive. Um, these are all shadows of of a thing to come, and that that being the reality being Christ. And, but you know what? Why don't we just go back to the simple explanation that you said before? I could start getting into a lot of the technicalities of this, but I or I could, if you really want to save time, simply answer, well. Because God says so. Mm. It seems so... I, I think sometimes some Christians are accused of being biblicists, or I, I don't know if that's the word that, we're, that, that people use to accuse Christians. Like, really? You just say because the Bible says so, and that's how you end the conversation. Mm. But there's, there's a humility. I mean, there does come a... I mean, not to... And this is not to d- dismiss the role of reason as I'm dialoguing with people within, say, my evangelism presentations. Ultimately, faith comes from hearing the message, not from my 
rational argumentation. But when it comes to my conversations with people or as I'm expositing scripture, use of illustrations is part and parcel. I do this with... I do this every time with confirmation classes, be be it with little kids or with adults. You'll use analogies or illustrations to teach the Word of God. Hmm. Pictures. Jesus did this all the time. Those were called parables. (laughs) 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 Earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. A a, a kind of a, a a relatable reality to then teach a equally real, if not more infinitely real, spiritual reality. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing when we teach and we sit down with people too. But when someone might, uh, someone might, might buck and they might push back against your, your, your little logical illustrations or explanations, they might say, yeah, well, whatever, blah, 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 but this is this, this, this. And there, there will come a point where as you're, as you're having your conversation with them and this is just, it's just too offensive to their reason for them to accept mm. Not all that different when Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread, I am the manna that fell from heaven. Like, I am the greater manna, the greater bread that has come down from heaven. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood will have life and life to the end, life life into the full. Which some people say Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper. I'm not of that persuasion. Mm-hmm. However, it is even, even, and I and there are Lutherans within our church body who do say Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper here. Yeah. I'm like I said, I'm 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 not of that persuasion. However, it, it is incredibly hard not to see or not even to think about the Lord's Supper as Jesus is talking about his body and blood there. Right. Granted, you gotta remember he had yet to institute the Lord's Supper at that time. Mm. So he's not speaking to people who have who are regularly receiving Jesus' body and blood because, you know, do this whenever you drink it had yet to be said. Do this whenever you offer it had yet to be instituted. He hadn't he hadn't said this yet. Mm. But um Nevertheless, what did people say after Jesus said these things? This is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? Hmm. And what did they do? Well, they left. Yeah. And so Jesus then looks to his disciples and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And what is Peter? To bring it back to Article 8. The Peter who would later lapse and say, I reject, I, I, I just, for, and to save his own skin, I, I've never met that guy. Hmm. What does Peter boldly confess in faith? Where else would we go? Hmm. You have the words of everlasting life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And at the end of the day, that's not the worst, that's not the worst way to end the conversation <laughs> on baptism or the Lord's Supper. But. Right. You got any uh you got any additional thoughts? I don't think so. I think that about wraps it up. Alright. Okay. Well that that was a that was a very fun conversation on not one, not two, but three articles of the Augsburg Confession, but and that worked out really well. No doubt we um, we'll probably we'll probably revisit some of this stuff when we uh, eventually we're gonna try and get to the the apology of the Augsburg Confession. But um, this is a great primer on uh, the church and uh, uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. So for all of you listening, thanks for hanging out. And uh, Jacob and I will uh, see you next time. See ya. I think that that went... I didn't think we were going to get into Christology. (laughs) But you are right. Uh, That's... That's...